If you're looking for a cool hunting and fishing book series for a young reader, we found it. It's the award-winning book series called Lucky Luke's Hunting Adventures by author Kevin Lovegreen. These books are based on true adventures and are sure to captivate even the most reluctant readers. I mean, what outdoor-loving kid doesn't want to read about hunting and fishing? And they are AR-rated so your kids will get credit for them at school. These books are perfect for kids in kindergarten to sixth grade. You can check them out at kevinlovegreen.com. Trust me, your kids will thank you. On a personal note, we have this series and we absolutely love them. My boys Ransom and Valor eat these books up and I think your kids will love them too. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. So welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited to interview a gentleman that I've been learning a lot from recently. I just read his book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, and I get to talk to pastor, author, Matthew Trella today. Matthew, how you doing? Good. Good to be here with you, Jared. Good deal. Well, let's pray, and then i got a bunch of questions for you. Sure. Father, we thank you for this time to talk about, well, just a lot of things. Talk about your word, talk about uh, government and our role in our society as civilians and as pastors, and so lead this discussion. I trust you will. Give us wisdom, give us clarity. I thank you for Matt and his willingness to come on the show, and we just uh, trust that you're going to lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, Matt, for those who don't know who you are, don't know much about you, would you go ahead and just give us a little bit of an overview? Tell us who you are, tell us about your family, and then what it is that you do. Sure. Um, Well, I hail from Detroit, Michigan, originally. And uh, where I grew up, I was a minority, and I was in a gang as a teenager. Oh. And, uh, you know, I used to steal cars, burn down places, rob people, all that stuff. And I was placed within an organization, a Christian organization called Teen Challenge yeah. by the court. Yep. And that's where I came to know Christ. Wow. Radical transformation. Wow. Um, Praise God. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, after I got out, it's a year long program. I met this woman named Clara and I was immediately smitten and ended up marrying her two years later. We've had 11 kids together. Wow. We have, uh, six daughters, five sons. Our oldest is 38 now and our youngest is 12. That's and amazing. We have 20, 22 grandchildren so far. Oh <laughs> six my. kids are married. Amazing. So, yeah. Amen. So he's really done a great work in our lives, my life, and I pastor a church called Mercy Seed Christian Church. I head up a mission called Missionaries to the Preborn, and um, and now I'm all involved in teaching people the doctrine of the Lester Magistrate. Fantastic. Now, is the Christian church you're a part of, is that a part of the Restorationist movement? Is that... No, it's just a non-denominational Protestant congregation. Oh, okay, gotcha. Because we get a lot of Christian churches and Church of Christ churches around here that we're all a part of that Restorationist movement. And, oh, okay. uh, so I saw Christian Church, and I wondered if you guys were tied into that same group. But No. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, if you would, tell us about, so amazing, radical conversion. That's, I mean, I guess every conversion is radical because we're saved, <laughs> yeah. saved by God's grace. And uh, But bring us up to speed. How did you go from, you know, you're converted, you're married to this woman now, 
Uh, but you've been in pastoral ministry, so tell us about your call into ministry, that internal and external process into actually becoming a pastor. Sure. Um, about six months after I became a Christian, um, I felt the call of God in my heart, in my life, um, for the pastorate. I didn't know how all that was going to work out, and you know how you go through so much trying to figure out what exactly is the will of God for my life. Yeah. And I, every young man needs to go through that, where they struggle. What do you have for me? Do you want me to marry, not marry? Do you, what do you want me to do with the mm-hmm. days you've given me? And, um, but I ended up uh, going to um, school while I was married, um, and I, we had two kids. Okay. So I did my four years, had planned on going on to seminary, um, but I ended up not going on to seminary because I found out about the slaughter of the preborn, and mm. I felt like, well, I, I couldn't put more time into that yeah. when they're killing people, mm-hmm. and so I began to focus on ministering on behalf of the preborn. So I've been pastoring now since 1987. Okay. So I'm getting old. It's been <laughs> a lot of years. <laughs> Yeah, so you've been working with that. We are our church is a part of End Abortion Now, which is oh, Jeff, Jeff Durbin out in yeah. in, uh, in Arizona, and that work. And I, I read somewhere. I mean, you you actually. I mean, you were doing this work through the eighties and nineties. And I remember in the early nineties, Randy Alcorn was a part of this as well, where there was a huge movement. And then there seemed to be. I mean, outside of abortion clinics, standing guard praying, and then there seemed to be a uh, kind of a long period of time or a couple decades where churches seemed to be a little bit disinterested in doing anything with abortion or clinics and things like that. So you've been in what worked for a long time. Yeah, I actually got involved way back in 1988 mm-hmm. um, My um, I, when Operation Rescue began. I saw mm-hmm. that they were interposing at the doors of the death camp. My wife had been involved for the pre-born, um, going out, speaking up for them at the death camps. Um, picketing, things like that. I had never done anything. Mm-hmm. And um, when I saw what they were doing, I was like, that's right. You know, they're interposing. It's mm-hmm. interposition, yeah. historic Christian doctrine. So you would nonviolently place yourself in between, you know, the abortionist and the child that was about to be killed. There was actually over 80,000 Christians arrested over a four-year period from the late 80s to the early 90s. Wow. I started an organization here called Rescue Operation Milwaukee. We saw... Uh, the largest gathering outside an abortion clinic in America, over 5,000 people gathered outside a death camp. Nearly 1,000 were arrested for interposing for their neighbor, trying to keep them from a brutal death. And uh, what we found is that, you know, we thought everyone would just get on board. Mm-hmm. Once you see the pictures of what they do, right. and you understand a little bit, you know, about... Terrific. Um, it's just crazy. But unfortunately, what most um, churchmen did was they sat down, Jared, and wrote treatises on why they were right not to love their neighbor. Hmm. And so we found it overwhelmingly, whereas we thought we would have thousands of volunteers, um, what we found out was that didn't become the case. So what we decided to do was make a small group of people who would put aside everything in their life and minister on behalf of them on a full-time basis. I was a missions major in college. Okay. So I pulled Earl Parvin's book off my shelf. He's a professor from Moody, 
down in Chicago, and he wrote a book called Missions USA, where he lists every mission, every targeted people group by every mission in America. And I saw that there was not one mission that had targeted the preborn child as their people group, mm. which astounded me, given the fact that Christianity has always affirmed the humanity of the preborn child. Right. Christianity has always affirmed that abortion is murder. And we didn't have one Christian mission dedicated to ministering on their behalf when such brutality and oppression was taking place. Hmm. And so Missionaries of Preborn was founded. We started with 17 people. We targeted the highest volume killing center in the state with the commitment that we would interpose every day we were free of jail um, and they were killing babies till either they were closed down or God took us home. Yeah. And thanks be to God, one year later, Bread and Roses was out of business. Oh, praise God. We were all still alive. Yeah. <laughs> and so we saw God. So when we started, there were eight abortion clinics in our city, and now there's only two left. And abortion has dropped by nearly 70, that's 70 percent in our state since we began. Praise God. So we've seen the Lord do a great work. Amen. Amen. So this has uh, been work that you've been committed to now going on. I mean, this has been three decades. And so. Uh, press yeah. on. That's that's amazing. Yeah, we, we didn't go home afterwards. You know, they became very draconian. Mm-hmm. Like we had one guy who did five years in federal prison wow. for nonviolent interposing at the death camp. A lot of us have wives, children, and so we had to count the cost. Yeah. And we couldn't go home because they're killing people. Right. And so what we began to do is display the large photographs of preborn children mm-hmm. killed by abortionists. And our thinking was if. The killing of the preborn is going to be public policy in our nation, and it is. Then their suffering should be publicly published. Yeah. And so that's what we've done. If we're going to tolerate this as a people, we should be willing to look at the suffering that these children go through. Yeah. And we've really seen the Lord use those photographs tremendously. Hmm. Yeah. And then to see what's happened with end abortion now and uh, abolitionism and all these things with you younger people, um, it's just a breath of fresh air into <laughs> us older folks yeah well thank you for that work and for the i mean the, the pioneering work that you and and your crew did and are doing that's 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 fantastic let's sh- switch gears a little bit not that that is I mean, that's of utmost importance um but let's switch gears to something else that's also very important and i read your book we have people in our church reading reading your book now i heard about it from a pastor buddy out in utah and uh, I had two recommendations: read Lex Rex from uh, by Sammy Rutherford, and then bring read the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates by Matthew Trella. So I picked up your book, read it, and I'd love for you just to explain for for people who I mean, this is unfamiliar territory for so many because it seems like a rediscovery of things that uh, that and maybe the culture, the, the the pressure of the moment is causing people to dive in the scriptures and ask some big questions that they've not had to ask before and get answers to questions that they've not asked before. But you talk about interposition and you talk about uh, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Where did you discover that, or read not discover, but rediscover that? Tell us your history, kind of autobiographical sketch of how you uncovered this doctrine and then saw the seriousness of it and then began to apply it. Sure. Um, it began in the early 90s while we were interposing for the preborn. There was a reformed minister who told me about the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And as soon as he talked about it, it was one of those things that grabbed you. You know, mm-hmm. like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That seems right. And, you know, you want to read a book on it. There is no book right. <laughs> on it, you know. And so 
it kind of sits there in your mind and, you know, your life goes on and go all the way up to 2008. And at our church, you know, our church has always been heavily involved in ministry, you know, at prisons, out on the streets, the universities, um, the marketplaces of life, bringing people um, the law, word, and gospel of our Lord. Mm -hmm. And so we were like kind of watching our country continue to sink into oblivion and decadence, immorality, government making law contrary to the law and word of God constantly. Mm -hmm. And we had nothing left. We just spent time over a year and a half period, got together every other week or at least once a month, and just got together in somebody's home and cried out to God. Mm -hmm. And at one of those gatherings, when we were done, we sat and we talked, and I told people while we were praying, I just felt like we need to teach the church and the American people and the magistrates of America the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. We need to establish a website. We need to write a book. We need to begin to do this. So I wrote a series of short articles about the doctrine. Got a really good response from people, and people kept saying, where do you learn more about this? You can't find anything. Right. Like if you Googled it, you know, anything you Google on Google, you're going to get hundreds and hundreds of pages usually, right. not thousands. If you Google Lester Magistrate Doctrine, there was a page and a half. Right. <laughs> Most of them didn't have anything to do with the Lesser Magistrate Doctrine. That's how little it was known. Yeah. And so anyways, that's how this was all birthed. Um, um, you know, from our love for our pre-born neighbor, from this time of prayer, we decided we needed to do this. So I, I spent um, time out at the Library of Congress in D.C., mm -hmm. um, accumulated a bunch of things. There's been no book written on it in well over 300 years, mm. and even that book just touched on it as part of a larger work. Right. And that's mostly how everything is about the doctrine. And um, when I was at the Library of Congress, it was interesting because they wanted to help me really? do my research. Yeah, because they've heard like every topic on the planet. Mm -hmm. And when you gather there with the other authors, when you first arrive, there's about 30 of us. They have the librarians there. They ask you what you're doing, what you're researching, blah, blah, blah. You could tell they've all heard it before. Then they asked me, and I said, well, I'm here to research the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. The whole room came live, and all the librarians were like, what? What's that? So I got to explain it to all of them. Uh -huh. And all these librarians were f looking for historical examples and writings as best as they could. I, have, I still have a bunch of them I haven't even read yet, wow. <laughs> you know, from all the things. And anyway, so that's how this all came about. And... You know, we've published a work um, called The Magdeburg Confession, which mm -hmm. is also available at our website, yep. defytyrants.com. Because as I was doing my research, I kept coming across scholars who said, you know, the first time the doctrine was formalized by Christian men was in 1550 in Magdeburg, Germany. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to read that, obviously. Right. And I could only find it in Latin or German. Spent eight months talking to librarians, scholars, historians across America and Europe, trying to find someone who knew of an English translation had several along the way tell me, yeah, we don't think there ever has been an English translation. Uh -huh. Finally, a, a guy who heard about me from um, Concordia University, okay. Lutheran Seminary here in the Milwaukee area, he contacted me and he's like, he works at Rare Works in their library at the university. He said, there's got to be an English version. Okay. He calls me back a month later. He says, guess what? There never has been. Wow. And he secured a 1550 original 
from the Bavarian State Library in Munich, Germany. We secured that. I hired a guy with a PhD in Latin and Greek from uh, Cornell University to do the translation work. He took it just as a hired gun, calls me two weeks into it, and he's like, how has this document never been translated into English? I go, right? How is that possible? And so anyways, we've translated English. We put a foreword and a prelude and a postscript, lots of footnotes so you get the impact of what those churchmen wrote about there uh-huh. in Magdeburg. The history behind it is tremendous. As you know, I have a chapter about Magdeburg in my book, too, yeah. Give people that history. Yeah, yeah. we got a guy at our church that just bought that, uh, I guess from your website, and purchased it. So the fruit of the labor that you guys did is being, I mean, here we're in southern Illinois, and we got a gentleman in our church in his 60s, great friend of mine, that read your book, and then he purchased that as well. And so, man, well done. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Amen. Okay, so the, the epicenter of the debate and everything that's going on from state to state in light of COVID-19 and the pandemonium that's come from not the virus, but from media and from just the insanity that has ensued from all of this. And I don't know if you saw, but the CDC even came out, I think two days ago now, and said that the death rate to this thing is 0.0026%. So, I mean, right on par with the seasonal flu. I mean, that's just right on par. And... Nobody likes hearing data. Nobody likes hearing actual stats. Uh, there is a, for some reason, a real draw to fear, uh, and where people seem to enjoy that. I don't know why. If it's, it has to do with movies that have come out, but there seems to be uh, just, a, it's like an adrenaline rush, thinking about how everything's falling apart, and it's just, it's been insane. Um, but the epicenter of the debate for churches going back and gathering has been around Romans thirteen and First Peter two. And you've seen this, and we made a decision two weeks ago that we're just going to start gathering again. We're not, uh, you know, making a big point uh, to, we're, we're not uh, drawing unnecessary attention to ourselves by blasting everything over Facebook or anything like that. But we are just saying, hey, it's time for us to meet. We're going to make a decision. Here are the categories where God has commanded things the state has prohibited or things that the state's prohibited that God has commanded. Here are the categories here. And for us to honor the position of everybody in our church, the convictions of everyone in our church, we feel obligated to begin to gather and give the decision back to the people. We've had a couple people that are not ready for that yet. And we're being patient and honoring that decision that they're making. But uh, your book was so helpful here. There's a group of pastors that met, 41 pastors in Southern Illinois. Three of us, three three of those pastors, and then me makes the fourth, who are saying we're going back to gathering. We're going back to having services. Um, when you walk through, Romans 13 seems clear, 1 through 7, uh, in a when that passage is taken complete, because we believe and you believe in Romans 13, 1 through 7, I know. So do I. It's, it's not a matter of some people have this verse and other people have this verse. We, we both have the whole Bible. Explain the doctrine of the magistrates in the, like in the, under a constitutional republic in light of Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter chapter 2, I think, verse 13 and 14. How do we approach going against or defying or not defying governors in our states or politicians who are doing unjust unjust things sure well first off when it comes to the doctrine of the lesser magistrate um the magistrate applies his office to the situation at hand he possesses lawful authority so whereas like we as citizens if we disobey the governor 
that would come under the category of what some call civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. It, that isn't the case with the lesser magistrate. That's good. They're not committing an act of uh, civil disobedience. They possess lawful authority, God-given lawful authority by virtue of their office. A magistrate, by the way, um, Jared, is any public official, whether elected or appointed. Um, we use the term magistrate. It's an old English word. It still gets applied to some public offices today, but it was a term generally used by the reformers, and um, we've kind of given it new life, mm-hmm, <laughs> publishing right. the book, and we call it a doctrine because it was a doctrine established by Christian men in 1550, even though it's seen in the Old Testament, um, even though it's seen practiced by non-Jewish, non-Christian nations down through history, showing it's natural to man. Um, and, of course, it's seen throughout Western civilization applied over and over again. Um, the doctrine itself is simply this, because I never did say that. Mm-hmm. The doctrine is that when the higher-ranking civil authority makes unjust or immoral law, policy, or court opinion, the lower or lesser-ranking civil authority is both the God-given right and duty not to obey the superior authority, and if necessary, to actively resist the goodness of the doctrine is it reigns in the tyranny or the lawlessness of the higher authority, um, and it often does so bloodlessly. Yeah. If you allow that type of oppression and tyranny to continue, it often ends in bloody revolution. Mm-hmm. So this is a Christian doctrine that Christian men first wrote about. The Magdeburg Confession was the first time it was formalized. John Knox picked it up from there, as did Christopher Goodman. Uh, Philip Mornay, and other of the reformers, uh, Theodore Beza. John Knox probably wrote the foremost treatise on the doctrine in 1558. It's called his Appellation to the Nobles of Scotland. Everyone should read that. He cited over 70 passages of scripture to show that the doctrine is sound in the word of God. Um, So it's important to understand the distinction, you know, of a churchman versus a public magistrate. Mm -hmm. Um, in this regard. So, nevertheless, the historic the historic position of the church has been, if the state commands that which God forbids, or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than man. We are to obey God rather than the state. Yeah. That's our duty as Christians. Um, you look at Daniel, you know, he was told, you know, not to pray. He prayed anyways. He went by the window, knelt down so nobody could misunderstand what he was doing and he did it three times <laughs> so yeah. he's gonna get caught right and he did that out of his fealty and love for our lord obviously right for the lord he did that but you have to remember at the same time he also did that as a magistrate mm-hmm. his inner position impacted the entire realm yeah. there in Babylon because of his position his public position regarding that empire and so um, when it comes to some men, they have both their love for the Lord and their office yeah. that they have. For men like me and you, we don't hold public office in you know, our right. church. And so when it comes to Romans 13, we approach it the same way. Mm-hmm. If the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we're to obey God rather than man. Yeah. Some people say we're to obey God no matter what. And there's tons of churchmen who teach that to their people. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely wrong. Another thing that's regularly taught you, Wait, is, wait, wait. You mean not obey God no matter what, but obey the state no matter what? Yeah, did yeah, I say that? Yes, backwards? yes, yes. We, yeah, Thank we need you. to obey God no matter what, but not the state no matter what, yes. Yep. A senior moment. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So they say we're to obey the state no matter what. Um, some say we're to obey the state in everything unless we have to personally sin. But when you look at church history and you look at the Word of God, you see that that's not a true standard either. Mm -hmm. um, to give a recent example, look at Corey Temboom. No one told her she had to put Jews in a concentration camp. She didn't have to personally sin. Yet she still helped them. Yeah. Hid them in her house. And um, you look at the Christians from 170 years ago. No one told them they had to own a slave, abuse a slave. They didn't have to personally sin. Yet they still helped the slaves. Right. So um, let me hit this decline here. And um, so that's important to understand. The other thing that some churchmen will say is we always obey unless they tell us we can't preach the gospel. Right. But the problem with that is there are many instances in Scripture where the people of God disobey the state over issues other than just preaching the God, than preaching the gospel. Right. Where God commends them for obeying Him. So the historic position again has always been when the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we obey God, not the state. And when it comes to Romans 13, um, we have to understand when you look at the passage, there is nothing there that says we're always to obey the state, mm -hmm. that we're always to obey the civil authorities. What men do, Jared, is they impose that on the text. Yeah. We call that an act of eisegesis. Eis means into in the Greek. It's where you read into Scripture something that isn't there. Mm -hmm. We, of course, as churchmen, want to do exegesis. Right. Act is out. Draw out the original intended meaning um, from the writer to the hearers. That's what we want to do. In fact, there's not one Scripture in, in the whole Bible that says we're always to obey the government. And that brings us to the second point of good hermeneutics, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. Yes, scripture good. with a big S interprets Scripture with a small S. In other words, when you're looking at a particular verse, Scripture with a small S, you have to look at it in the immediate context, and you have to look at it in light of the whole of God's Word. Yeah. Scripture with a big S interprets Scripture with a small S. So when you do that, you see there's so many places in the Word of God where the people of God don't obey the civil authorities, and God blesses and commends them for doing so. The Hebrew midwives were told by the civil authority that they had to kill the male Hebrew children. They refused to do it. Daniel was told, told um, you can't pray. Um, he prayed anyway. And that yeah. is the standard, as I said before, when the state commands that which God forbids, like what happened with the midwives, yeah. or forbids that which God commands, like what happened with Daniel, we are to obey God rather than man. And an important thing on this Romans 13 thing also is um, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you see that Paul, who penned Romans 13, um, knew that the governor wanted to arrest him. Mm -hmm. And instead of submitting to the governor, he craftily fled down a basket down the side of a wall. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, right. Um, and so that's... you. You're messing with the hallmark of good hermeneutics. Scripture yeah. interprets scripture if you embrace this idea that um, we're always to obey the state. Yeah. And then the last thing I would say about that is what's interesting is is that God's established four great governments, family government, um, church government, and civil government. They're all meant to produce within the individual self-government. Uh -huh. All of those authorities are directly under God. It isn't like there's this hierarchy. Right. No, it's it's there's here's God and then there's like these arrows coming mm -hmm. down to these four governments 
because all are to uh, govern themselves according to his rule. Yeah. So when it comes to like family government, um, you know, it says there in um, Ephesians and Colossians, I think it is, you know, children obey your parents. Yeah. There are no like, caveats. There's no conditional clauses, no limitation <coughs> clauses or anything like that. Yet no one would take it to mean unlimited obedience. Exactly. Like if, if your father told you to go down and rob the corner gas station because right. you know, you're 12 and yeah. you'll just go to juvie for a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, know, and right. If I do it, I'll go to prison for years. <laughs> no one would fault the son for not obeying his father. Exactly. And when it comes to um, church authority, you look at Hebrews 13, it says, obey those who have the rule over you. No conditional clauses, no limitation clauses, yet yeah. no one views that as unlimited yeah, um, exactly. authority, nor is anyone required to give unlimited obedience. Amen. For example, if a pastor, some congregant found out the pastor was taking money out of the till, right, uh, out of the offering plate, mm-hmm. and he tells the congregant, Oh, don't tell the elders. Yeah, <laughs> no one right. would fault the congregant for telling the elders. Exactly. <laughs> but for some reason, when it comes to civil government, people have this idea that they have to always obey no matter what. And I believe part of it, that is, is because we do live in a status tell. Right. Um, Christianity produced what we call federalism, uh-huh. where all three great governments were important. Each had its own role, function, and limits. Mm-hmm. Family government did, church government did, civil government did. Now we live in this status quagmire where the state has invaded family government, has invaded church government, and so everyone thinks, well, we have to obey Mm -hmm. the state, plus their churchmen always teach them that. And here's the problem with that, is that here in Romans 13, we actually have limitation clauses, we actually have caveats. The civil authority is to reward those, it says, who do good, mm-hmm. and to punish those who do evil. Correct. So when they turn their God-given role upside down and begin to punish those who do good and reward those who do evil, as the ministers at Magdeburg said, that's an invention of the devil. Yeah. <laughs> we don't go along with that. Right. Instead, we obey God rather than man. That's so good. And let, let's think about, uh, quickly, categories I'm in the state of Illinois. You're in the state of Wisconsin. There's shenanigans going on. Our governor's going up there and hanging out in Wisconsin and bringing his family up there. And I know that Wisconsin has had some dealings with uh, every state has has had their dealings with uh, just a conflict with public interest and then public policy. So I've got categories that I'm working through and thinking through with our people and trying to encourage other pastors to think through. And Correct me if I'm wrong, add to this list if, if I'm missing something. But number one, the state is forbidding gathering. God says to gather. The, the, the name church means assembly. I mean, it means it, that's ecclesia. It's, to, it's an assembly of people. We're gathering, okay? We're commanded, Hebrews 10, and not neglect the gathering. As we see the day approaching, whatever the, you know, whenever the day is, uh, we know that we are to continue to gather and not neglect it. So the, the state's forbidden that what God has commanded. Work and provision for the family. So you have Exodus chapter chapter 20 within the 10, I mean, you have you have work clearly commanded and then you, six days you shall work. And and so God has said to work, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that a man who does not provide for his household is worth worse than an unbeliever. And we don't even really have a frame of reference for what that means other than, than that verse. It's real bad. And, it's bad. Yeah, and the state saying you can't provide to, to your family for your family for a wide swath of the of the population in our country. Three, we're told to uh, anoint with oil, laying hands on the sick, and praying for healing. James chapter five. 
I can't even get as a clergyman into the local hospitals. They won't even let me yep. in to go pray. We had a we had a members whose mother was in the hospital, and I had to plead, and they said no. And so we're said to lay hands on the sick and pray for the sick, and the state's saying you can't do that. And then four, we're told to greet with another one another with a holy kiss, with it, which has applications in several different ways, but it includes a brotherly, affectionate uh, handshake, hug. It, it includes physical contact, and we're told we can't do that. And so there are probably other categories, it, uh, but I, to me, I just riding around with my son the other day and just asking him a basic question. Hey, son, who are we to obey, God or man? And he said, he's a five-year-old, and it's just real simple. He said, well, God, that's who we're to obey, Dad. And like, absolutely. So the, these seem to be applicable in the situation. Who do we obey, God or man? Yeah, you obey God rather than man. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that was awesome. <laughs> you should... If you haven't already, do a sermon on all that. Okay. Um, I, I did a sermon entitled The Failure of Churchmen in the Face of COVID-19, okay. where I listed out numerous things also, you know, um, you know how they, they built this whole virus on a mountain of lies, mm-hmm. which, as you pointed out earlier in, in the recording here, you know, even the CDC is admitting now, you yeah, know, it's like a, right. like a nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the... That's a violation of the Ninth Commandment, bearing yeah. false witness. Right. Um, oh, that's good. Unjust weights and measures, mm-hmm. God's law being impugned there. They passed a two to six trillion dollar bill, biggest in the history of our country, all created out of thin air, yeah. fiat money. Right. Um, so you have that, the quarantine laws, yep, God's the quarantine law, opposite. they impugned. Yep. He makes it clear, you know, you. Quarantine the sick, not yeah. the whole society. Right, <laughs> you know? exactly. And that's a good and and then of course work that you brought up so mm-hmm. incredibly important. So yeah, we should definitely be obeying God rather than man in this situation. I think that's extremely important. When you look at the churchmen of old, like Ambrose, mm-hmm. um, and you look at John Chrysostom and other Christian men down through the ages, so many historical examples, they actually. Um, use their church authority to keep the state from entering their church buildings. Mm-hmm. Now here we have the state telling the churchmen they can't enter their church buildings. Yeah, right. And they're obeying that. I mean, it is so incredibly different. Like Ambrose kept the emperor himself from entering the church, yeah. Theodosius, because wow. of injustices Bold. which he had committed and wouldn't allow him in until there was public repentance. John Chrysostom, when Eutropius, who was number two in the entire Roman Empire, only under the emperor, when he came in under the bad graces of the emperor, fled to John Chrysostom's church. John Chrysostom would not allow the state to come in and seize him. Um, They had to wait till he left the building. Um, So whereas the churchmen of old would defend the righteousness and defend the authority of the church, the churchmen of our day quibble and, you know, gladly and overwhelmingly, vastly comply with the state on this matter of not gathering. Yeah, And it needs to be resisted. And when the churchmen interpose, if they would, um, it's a goodness to the rest of society. It blunts the tyranny yeah. of the civil authority. It helps businessmen. As I said before, we live in a status quagmire. You already have... The businessmen have licenses they have to get. They have untold regulations they're under. If they open up against the state authorities, it's much harder for them. Yeah. Us as churchmen have far less to lose. Yeah. Um, and we have a duty to do right by him to begin with. 
we will help the businessmen in their situation by interposing against the tyranny. We will help the elderly, like yeah. you pointed out. Families can't even visit and hug and kiss their elderly loved ones yeah. right now. And I, we had the same thing up here in Wisconsin where you as a clergyman, you can't even get in any of these buildings, nursing mm-hmm. homes, hospitals. It's crazy. So it if is. the churchmen would go ahead and interpose and just open the doors of their buildings, it signals great things to um, the population at large. It asserts leadership. People want to listen to what the churchmen have to say. I know this for a fact. Yeah. Because we've heard from so many people, unbelievers and those who their faith is very surface mm-hmm. before that, who, because of our actions that we've taken against the tyranny of our governor, are interested in what we have to say about the things of Christ. And we know as churchmen, God's word speaks to all matters it does. of our life and all matters of life. Yes. And we have Amen. a duty to give the whole council, including matters of civil government. Amen. That's so good. And I, what I'm nervous about in our society is that when the cost is so minimal, the cost of obedience to God is so minimal for us, but we refuse to do it. When the cost is actually big, what's going to happen? And yeah. and that's the fear that I have is what are we training our people here for? Are, what's, the, what's downstream from everything that's been happening uh, over the last several months? What's downstream for the church? And I had a great friend of mine, uh, Bill Smith. I interviewed him on my podcast a couple weeks ago. And we just had a conversation similar to ours right here. He's a pastor in town. They've been meeting for a month now in their building. And what he talks about is, hey, there are people all, of, all over the world whose government has said you can't gather. And they gather every week because they're yeah. the church. They gather every week because they're the church. That's what they, that's, that's what they do um, because that's what God has called us to do. And now... There's minimal cost. I mean, there's going to be some people, and one of my actually, he's like my best friend now. And I had this conversation, and we talked through this because you know his fear is that what what are what are non-believers going to say? And you know, Jonathan Lehman and Nine Marks came out with an article and a podcast about this about about public witness. And my position was was to say what what's our public witness say? The the longer we continue to disobey God here. And the longer yeah. we begin to, and so our decision has been put it in the hands of our people, and we want to honor. And I just said disobey God here because that's my conviction. I think we are to be gathering. We have people in our church, a small minority, who are, are saying, you know what, we're not going to, and want to honor that the best we can in a sure. Romans fourteen kind of way because we know each situation is a little bit different. But yep. my my fear is down the road here. What what are churches going to do when there is an actual cost to obedience? What's the right. cost here? Maybe a fine. Maybe they hear about it and they, they slap the wrist of a pastor. You know, they don't even have the authority to take away our nonprofit status, even though they, they're th- they're threatening that. Um, but the cost is so small, and and we we actually had local magistrates here that that gave us the go ahead. We had, they said, yeah, go ahead. We're not going to bother you. And so yeah. thankful for our county leaders that did that. You know, that said that's you go ahead. the doctrine. That's the it doctrine is. of it's Western a, But here's the thing, though, and here's the thing, Matt. We have other counties that have done it and churches that are still, still saying we're not going to yep. meet. And we, we, we had a church said they're not going to meet for 18 months. Like, right. That's, no, we, have, we have people who are elderly in our church, and like when a flu bug's going around in our yeah. church or some other illness, they stay away because they're older or yeah, and that's, compromise, but everybody else still meets. Right. You know, so right. you're, you're, 
gracious to that. You understand that. That's Absolutely. Sense. It is common sense. And you want to honor <laughs> so, that. You want to honor that. Right. But what I found with is that, you know, going back to these two brothers article that you had mentioned that they had written, mm-hmm. forget their names. I just had perused that article. I never read it thoroughly. But what I found with most churchmen, Jared, is the bigger interest in, amongst Christians to do in general is they want to be liked. Mm-hmm. They want to be liked. Um, they're more interested in, like, Christ calls us to be the salt of the earth. Most Christians seem to be interested in being the sugar of the earth, you know? Uh-huh. And they don't want to lead. Mm-hmm. They want to be liked. Okay, so you open your church, there will be some people who think you're crazy. I mean, yeah. down to Mississippi, somebody firebombed a church or burnt the church down because right. they gathered, and they're like, yeah, you know, you're putting us all in jeopardy. That's part of leadership. Mm-hmm. Then you're able to explain to people the numbers here and what's being done is fraud. Yeah. It's fear made from fiction. It's hysteria and it's tyranny being put in place because the perfect narrative for a tyrant is a virus. Uh, the perfect narrative for tyranny is a virus because you have the unknown. Mm-hmm. And so and you have fear. Yeah. And so people are willing to give up their freedoms and just to bring themselves under the boot of the state, which is the wrong, it's yeah. the worst thing that you can possibly and, do. And all you have to do is say that people are asymptomatic and just extend it beyond two weeks. Just say, well, you could be asymptomatic for up to a month. And then everybody, yeah. everybody's like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Asymptomatic right. for up to a month? You know, like how long could you extend? Well, you could be asymptomatic for six, you could be a carrier for six months. Yes. You, you know, and there's been... And there's been epidemiologists, medical professionals pointing that out to all of us Mm -hmm. all along this way. But they're all censored Mm -hmm. by the media and the government officials. It was this select group. We only listen to their science. I I just preached a sermon last Sunday, some thoughts on science and Christianity, where I address all this. By the way, if people want to listen to any of the sermons I did on COVID, um, they can go to sermonaudio.com. That's where we post them. Great, and just put in my name, Matchwella, and you know you can see the sermons we have there. Um, and I'll link those into the show notes. Also, I'll link your book. I'll, I'm going to link uh, the appellation of the nobles of Scotland from John Knox. Uh, I'll I'll post a bunch of those links and your sermon audio links as well. Awesome. Yep. Sounds good. Good deal. Hey, is there anything else, Matt? Before we finish up here, I think we got some. This is great. I think our listeners are going to enjoy this. Listeners, thanks for, yeah. for tuning in. You got anything else no, the, to say before we finish? Yeah, you know, like in any situation, God uses it for good. Amen. He always Amen. Does. I doesn't don't care he? What it is. That doesn't excuse us from you know. That doesn't excuse us from confronting the tyrants. Yeah. That doesn't excuse us from speaking against tyranny. Um, the history of Christianity is confronting the evils, idols, and tyrants of their day. And mm-hmm. we as churchmen must be no different. Ambrose, I believe it was, who said, you know, um, not only will we give account for every idle word, we will also give account for every silent word, Ooh. for every time we fail to speak up when we should speak up. Mm-hmm. And um, so the goodness I've seen in this is like, um, one of the things I've seen among others is the is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate being fleshed out in our society and people being able to see it demonstrated in time and space, just like what you shared about your county. And I could tell you hundreds of stories, and we've posted them at our website, Uh DefineTyrants.com. Listen to this. Just in your state, you're in Illinois? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, we posted last week about how Madison County, 
down way down there near St. Louis, uh-huh. across the border from St. Louis, defied the governor. Yep. And said, no, no one's getting arrested for misdemeanor charges because they opened their business. And in fact, we'll we'll protect our businessmen yeah. for opening their business. And then the very next day, the state police joined with them in their interposition. Your Illinois State Police and said, we won't arrest anybody. Yep, exactly. <laughs> who violates this so-called order of the governor. Exactly. And it was the day after that, the governor, your governor, rescinded his order. You're absolutely right. <laughs> That's a perfect example of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate yeah. in action. And to keep an eye on, on the pulse of Illinois, if you want to look up Darren Bailey, he's the rep, uh, representative from the 55th District in Illinois. He's been doing some great work, and that could be helpful for uh, for your followers to maybe check out as well. He's been doing great work in Illinois. We've had counties in the southern part of the state that have been doing exactly what you're talking about. It's not just Madison County. There are several counties in this area that are doing the same thing. And so we're very thankful that our, uh, very thankful for all that, you know, all that our lesser magistrates are doing in the, in the region, in the area. And we're seeing it exactly what you said, time, space, right in front of us, and how important this doctrine is. That's right. And the churchmen need to honor those magistrates, speak of those magistrates. The duty of the people is to rally around those magistrates and to assure them of their support, both publicly and privately, of their possessions, of their persons, of their prayers. Mm -hmm. Massively important part of the doctrine. That's good. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jared. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.